Are you listening to this on Spotify right now? You should be. On Spotify, you can listen to all your favorite artists and podcasts in one place for free. You don't even need a premium account. Spotify has a huge catalog of podcasts on every topic, including the one you're listening to right now. On Spotify, you can follow your favorite podcasts so you never miss an episode. Premium Spotify users can download episodes to listen to offline, so wherever you are, you can hear me. It'll be like we're on that vacation in the mountains together. And of course, you can easily share what you're listening to with your friends on Instagram. If you haven't done so already, be sure to download the Spotify app and search for Be Reasonable with your moderator, Chris Paul. Or you can browse to find new podcasts in the tab marked Your Library. Oh, and make sure to follow me so you never miss an episode of Be Reasonable. Welcome to Be Reasonable. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Okay, so what I want to do with this episode is a bit experimental. I'm going to try my best to explain in some way everything that I've been thinking about in regards to the podcast, in regards to life, in regards to uh, Donald Trump and what I think the future is going to be in the United States and where all of this is going to push us. All this is going to be in the context of COVID, of course, and I want to try to patiently lay out this entire narrative as I see it, and I want or I hope that you guys can be patient with me as I go through this. Um, I'm not a scientist, obviously, and I'm going to try to stick to discussing the theories about science and how our use of science is getting things wrong and confusing us and and the dangers of accusing one side of being pro-science and one side of being anti-science. I've been discussing this with some really smart friends of mine lately and uh, it's funny to me because, you know, these are people I've known for, for 10 or 15 or more years and I think and I hope that they would describe me over that time as fairly reasonable, fairly even keeled, as well as being, you know, thoughtful and intelligent. And those same people, so I was discussing this stuff with them yesterday, and the reactions were like, have you lost your mind? What are you possibly talking about? Um, are you a Trump supporter now? Are you a conspiracy theorist now? Um, and uh, have you just had a psychotic break kind of kind of or psychic break kind of thing, right? Um, I don't think I'm any of those things. Uh, I'll leave that for you to decide. I do not want to discuss far out conspiracy theories. I have no interest in those. I think that my standard for proof of everything has always remained pretty high. I am extremely skeptical by nature, which people have, you know, occasion to think as think of me as um lacking emotions anti-emotional i'll play along into the joke because i think it's funny or uh or negative or pessimistic and i don't think i'm any of those things i think that i that my approach has always been to to doubt anything that sounds like it doesn't match 
a relatively sophisticated understanding of reality and the real world. I studied philosophy in college, and I have spent a lot of time studying philosophy since college and thinking about things in the way I was taught in my um, philosophy classes in college. And I went to a, uh, a good school with a very good philosophy department, and we had you know, occasionally guest speakers from, from Princeton and places like that, like real hard hitting philosophers. And now philosophy in academia has changed a lot in the last 20 years. Um, the focus has shifted from studying classics and the history of philosophy and, you know, the grounding of moral philosophy. And now most philosophy or not, I want, I don't want to say most because, you know, again, this is not something, it's not like I've spent a hell of a lot of time researching the current state of philosophy in academia, but I have listened to quite a few really intelligent people talk about it. And I've seen how these things reflect in society. And a lot of the philosophy departments are now focused on postmodern thought, which basically means that everything everything that you could possibly say or think exists within a context of what amounts to Marxist systems of power and oppression, right? So you can't pick apart an issue or discuss an issue without knowing who said it and why and what their experience was, which in one way is a very interesting framework to discuss ideas because obviously those things are important. They're extremely important to understand what a person might have really meant. The downside of it is that when you are, when you are focused on who a person is based on immutable, you know, identity characteristics, or even based on schools of thought, things they might've done, things they might've gotten in trouble for bad things they did in their life, whatever. Um, it takes something away from the discussion of pure ideas in the abstract. And, you know, there's a, another school of thought that says pure ideas in the abstract are not worth discussing in some way. I think that is also crazy, crazy wrong. Like, I think that the way to understand everything is by trying to view it through all of those different lenses and then kind of synthesize a perspective that can match the real world as well as it can be understood. I think people have also, or I know one of my friends yesterday was, because we first got into the argument on text, which was a little bit, a little bit more contentious. And then we hopped on FaceTime and we chatted for about two more hours. And I don't think that I convinced him, but uh, I think that we had a fantastic discussion and, you know, we really picked at the, uh, the nuance of things. So that's what I would like to do. If he wants to come on the podcast, he knows he can, but, and maybe we'll have that discussion that way. Um, but for now, I want to try to recreate as much of that discussion as I can. And some of the ideas I understand are a little extreme and a little out there. And the reason why I think ideas like that are important is because when you're studying philosophy, a great way to understand what your true intuitions are about a given topic is to take extreme examples where you will 
come down on one side or the other and then investigate what your intuition was and and what makes it that way. And then you can move from the extreme back toward the other end and encounter all the examples in there and see if your intuition remains the same. And if it does, then that means that there's something about that extreme example that might might shed a lot of light or maybe even make a conclusive argument about why the f- way you feel or why you feel the way you feel um, about this or that moral issue. Like, so for example, we, we could take something like murder where we all agree that murder is wrong, right? So murder's wrong, I think, primarily because you are taking away another autonomous or not uh, another autonomous beings opportunity for life right now is every killing murder so you talk about that you know obviously if i walk up to a random stranger on the street and stick a knife in his chest that's murder no one questions that right if i am in my house and a stranger breaks into my house and tries to attack my wife and kids. Not that I have them. I'm just, you know, making an example, like I said, and I end up with a knife in my hand and stick that knife into this stranger's chest. That's not murder. And it's not murder because it was in response to someone trying to take away my life, my liberty, my property, right? So it's self-defense, and that is an entirely different classification of one human being killing another human being. And most people's intuitions on the guilt of murder in those two circumstances are going to be different, even though the act is the same. So then what we do is pick apart the reasons why you are inclined to feel that one of these cases of a human taking another human's life is justified and why the other one is murder. And by the way, I don't want to like force you to inhabit the moral position for the sake of discussion that you think the self-defense killing is justified. It is absolutely a counterpoint to say, okay, well, maybe he could, you know, maybe you could have saved your wife and kids without putting the knife in the stranger's chest. Totally, totally valid. Okay. Maybe we could have, maybe we could have solved it by talking, right? Maybe we could have, uh, talked the guy into a state of passivity until, um, the police arrive. There are, of course, other options. My, and, and again, these are the ways that we, you know, dissect the morality of a situation. But we start on one end saying, yes, murder is always wrong. And then we move back. Well, is taking a human life wrong if it's in self-defense? Okay. That's a different discussion, right? Is taking a human life in self-defense wrong if we reasonably could have been expected to talk our way out of the situation? Now, that's an even more complicated discussion, right? And so this is the way when I'm breaking down issues, this is, this is how, this is the process I go through. And sometimes I can do it quickly and know how I feel about a situation very quickly. And sometimes it takes me uh, uh, days or weeks or months or even years to be like, Oh, that's the operating principle that I'm working on, right? Okay, so I just want to, I feel, I don't want to like belabor the introduction to all this. Um, But what I ask is that 
as long as this stays entertaining to you in some way, just bear with me and be patient and try not to reject thoughts just right out of hand because I am doing this in, in good faith and, and the spirit of good, goodwill, right? I'm not trying to convince you that, that Trump is good and that everyone else is bad or vice versa. I actually am not trying to convince you of anything. I said this in maybe the intro podcast, but my goal is not to convince you that I'm right. Okay. My goal is only when I'm presenting a counterpoint, my goal is only to convince you that you should not be as certain as you are. Okay. And once you take on the position of humility and uncertainty, your capacity to be terrible to others diminishes. All right. And so I'm going to start this by talking about uh, the beaches in Jacksonville reopening. Uh, yeah. Yesterday was Saturday the 18th. So Saturday the 18th, right? F- on Friday the 17th, the beaches in Jacksonville, Florida were opened by the mayor at 5 p.m. And people began going outside again. And uh, so there were there were uh, all sorts of headlines yesterday with pictures they had selected from this beach that showed people, you know, walking with their families and dogs and uh, maintaining some degree of social distancing. But the um, the way the picture was taken made it look like there was a hell of a lot of people on the beach. And I'm not disputing that that picture was of that. There are just also other pictures from Jacksonville, from people there, from the mayor, from, you know, medical people in that town uh, that dispute (laughs) the number of people that were on the beach in a small area that were the pictures run by uh, major news outlets. Okay. So I'm going to this, going into this a bit agnostic. I'm considering the, the beaches are packed pictures to be one possibility on one end right because i'm inclined to believe that if there were more damning pictures they would have used them right um because there's no there's no point in running an article that is inherently scared about a packed beach that would use a less scary picture to to grab your attention on social media or in uh in a news website right so they're going to use they're going to use their best case um best argument to convince you right then so there are pictures that the mayor of Jacksonville by the way has retweeted um that show the the beach is very very sparsely populated there are other people tweeting about how sparsely populated they are so unless you are going to propose that all of these people in Jacksonville are conspiring to intentionally disinform their own citizens and the national media, you might be reasonably inclined to believe that the people on the ground there who are accountable to the people in their community might be telling the truth apart from what your initial moral intuition makes you believe about the story that's presented to you. Okay, so I want to try to unpack that. I hope that you're with me right now, and I hope that I don't sound pedantic while I'm breaking these things apart. But I am bothered in a great way by this situation because my friend sent me or sent this on a group text 
in a way that was like, how can these people be so stupid and irresponsible, you know, from a standpoint of, I would never do that, right? I don't like that. I immediately said, nice. Like, I was stoked for Jacksonville that they are getting to make use of their nicest, most serene places. I had my secret running location taken from me because they were worried that people were too close together. Now, why were they worried that people were too close together? Is it because they were too close together or was it because the nags and scolds in Los Angeles called the city and said, this place is a danger. Okay. There is absolutely no difficulty in me running seven miles through my secret location without coming within six feet of anyone, all right? But we are now so concerned that, and by the way, some of the reason that we're so concerned is because certain pieces of information are being highlighted about how we are able to transmit this disease. So again, this is, I'm gonna keep coming back to the media and to the central narrative, right? So the central narrative is that this disease is highly transmissible. And in a technical level, of course it is. It is more transmissible than the flu, more transmissible than the common cold. I am not disputing that science whatsoever, okay? What I am saying is there is a, a more comprehensive picture of how that information can be communicated so that people are left with a less scary, more accurate, and more actionable narrative, okay? And the actionable part is really important because what we're doing now is we're asking people to take specific behaviors for the benefit of people they don't know and will never meet for the most part, right? The situation basically is if someone sees someone else breaking their picture of what we're supposed to do vis-a-vis -vis lockdown, they think that person is immoral and now directly responsible for killing someone's grandmother, okay? That's fucking crazy, first of all. We are all, as humans, at this point, even the least informed of us, have a general understanding of the same situation, okay? And our ability to tolerate fear and risk is often the, the lead motivation to guide you to one standpoint or the other, right? Okay, and so let's talk about the moral judgment on these people in Florida. Now, you may or may not know this, and by the way, again, this is not an entirely conclusive science, but... I am listening to Fauci, I am listening to Burks, I am listening to um, people running stats, epidemiologists running stats in Hong Kong, I am listening to uh, Scott Gottlieb, like I'm getting a hell of a lot of information, as much information as I can possibly take in during the day without not doing anything else, I can't just sit there listening to coronavirus information all day, it's fucking, it's a little bit overwhelming, but like I am not... I am not trying to be an ideologue. I'm not trying to push a particular viewpoint. I am trying to operate with the best information, the best statistics, and the most open mind about potential consequences here and taking that all in the context of what I think makes a good society, okay? So it bothers me that these people are making these moral judgments. I don't judge people for wanting to go out on the beach, um, residents of Jacksonville. I mean, 
already the choice of highlighting Florida beaches being open is making everyone's brain go to two things, two particular narratives by which they process the beach information, right? The first is that everybody in Florida is stupid. Now, Florida is, everyone in Florida is stupid is fun as a joke, right? It is not true as a real thing, all right? There is no, there's no state in the country that doesn't have dummies, and sometimes those dummies seem like they're totally backwards and uh, and ignorant savages compared to the expert class, the entertainment class, um, the media, and what I am now calling the theorists, okay? And so I'm going to explain the concept of the theorists a little bit later, but the idea that these people are allowed to be highlighted as the nation's dumbasses and you know hashtag covidiots that that bothers the hell out of me because packed into that news report is your knowledge that everybody in florida is stupid and your knowledge that dumb spring breakers were down in florida a few weeks ago scaring everybody by being in in crowds and and making out and drinking together and all that right so now you have two preconceived notions about what Florida beaches mean in the context of COVID, right? So these people down in Florida can't be um, responsible citizens who care about their friends and neighbors and are taking the precautions necessary to behave as responsibly as they can, right? They can't be that. They have to be a bunch of ignorant dumbasses that are going to get our grandmothers killed. And so what we're going to do then is share this article as widely as we can and score points with the people around us who think, wow, this person is so, like, so informed and so morally good. Like, oh my God, they are pointing out these people totally breaking quarantine. And everybody knows that we have to act in quarantine exactly how I act or you're a terrible person. Remember, um, when we're talking about media, we're talking about three, uh, three central locations that are four, I guess, that serve media and entertainment culture, right? We have New York, we have Washington, D.C., we have San Francisco, and we have Los Angeles, right? Four major metropolitan areas, all perpetually governed by, by Democrats and technocrats, okay? And so all the stories that we are essentially fed are through that lens. Now, that lens is fine to look through as long as you know you're looking through a lens, okay? Just like people think, you know, a lot of people on, you know, quote unquote, my side or my former side or however people want to describe me now, I don't care. But those people look at all that information as it being objective rather than through a lens. They have no problem seeing that Fox is processing everything through a lens, and they absolutely are. If you believe that everything Fox News tells you is true, you are a dumbass. Likewise, if you believe everything that MSNBC and CNN tell you, you are also a dumbass. Okay, same thing with the New York Times and the Washington Post. I am sorry, but those institutions are not immune to being wrong or to acting maliciously or to acting in a or, or to act in a biased way that distorts their reporting. It is absolutely inarguable at this point 
that that the um the reputation of the institution can any longer protect them from the obvious harm that their own actions and biases are uh causing it okay so I, I, God, I'm trying to avoid tangenting, but I really can't. So I'm going to, I'm really going to hope that this all ties up into a cohesive narrative for you guys, because I think it's all connected. And I know I sound like I'm that fucking picture of, uh, Charlie. God, I can't think of his last name from, uh, always sunny in Philadelphia, like up in front of the, um, the whiteboard where he has all the pictures pinned and like the red, uh, the red string going through between all of these connecting dots, right? And he seems like that, that's like the picture of the crazy conspiracy theorist. And I make fun of people with that picture too, all right? So I really don't want to be that guy. And if I am, stop listening. But there's also, <laughs> you know, that, that picture with those, those, that red yarn between all those things, you know? That comes from a real thing that actually works that detectives do, okay? And so I'm also not calling myself a detective by any means. But again, the point of trying to synthesize a bunch of information is that it leads to a a cohesive narrative. And that's what I am trying my best to do for you. So please, again, bear with me because I know some of this does sound a little crazy. So I want to talk about two stories, two, two storylines of the media um, over the last few months, and I want that to be some perspective for you, okay? And again, none of the things I'm going to say are me taking Trump's side necessarily or supporting the things he does, and it, I hope they don't say anything about his actions um, outside of this situation because... Those are a separate conversation, and anyone who knows me would know that I do not like Trump, um, that I did not vote for Trump, that I was a vocal supporter of Hillary Clinton, against Bernie Sanders as well. So again, trying to do this with the best of intentions and taking into account all I know to be true of the negative aspects of Donald Trump, okay? I'm not disputing those, at least... Uh, at least not specifically right now, okay? So one of the stories was how they covered Senator Tom Cotton. And Tom Cotton, in late January, proposed that the virus was leaked from a lab in Wuhan, right? And he was met by all sorts of media outlets calling him a conspiracy theorist. You know, the fringe of the right comes up with this crazy conspiracy, you know, and it, of course it's a racist conspiracy because it's, it's blaming something on a person or organization rather than an accident in a dirty environment. You know, the story of the, the wet market basically implies some level of human ignorance, but no level of intentional harm. And the virus to a lot of people screams that there are people responsible for this, which of course naturally um, demands a higher level of inspection before you're going to uh, assign moral blame for something that is literally a worldwide horror. Okay. And so I understand why people are hesitant to do that, but there's now a big portion of the intelligence community that believes 
that the virus started in a Wuhan lab where they were studying coronavirus from bats. Okay. And the, the possibility that someone could have contracted the virus in the lab and then gone outside the lab, spread it to people, including people in the, uh, the wet market, right? That's entirely possible. And to deny its possibility on the basis of it being a fringe conspiracy theory or a, a point of race, racism against the Chinese people, both of those are terrible, terrible responses and they're dangerous responses. Okay. So if that is the case, we absolutely need to know it's the case because if something is going on with that lab, who, by the way, there were intelligence reports in 2018 that the lab's uh, safety standards were not adequate, okay, that there, were, that there were problems there, and people had feared this exact situation coming from that exact lab, okay? And now, again, none of these things are conclusive proof of this, and even me, I am, I am fairly convinced because I think that this is the... Um, simplest argument. I try to apply Occam's razor in everything. Like what is the most likely thing that you could see happening, you know, to cause all this. Okay. And I genuinely believe the Wuhan lab theory is that, and I think and hope that we will have more conclusive proof on that in the near future. But again, that thing being true implies all sorts of real scary, real world possibilities, including a war with China. And obviously, we all hope that that doesn't happen. But part of what my last episode um, about never being promised safety is that that is something that really could happen. And us remaining in a state of denial about the dangers that other superpowers in the world might potentially pose to the United States, that is not, that is not some deranged lunatic theory. Okay, that is something that people at the highest levels of our military and government are considering probably all the time, you know, and they're probably considering it in all sorts of places all over the world. And they do that so that the military is prepared to act when and where and if they need. Hopefully they never do. Right. But there are real people studying real things that really could matter to us at some point. And so to stay in the box of safe excuses for things makes no sense to me. All it does is leave us more unprepared to respond to situations. And if you haven't listened to the, the we were never promised safety thing, please do so at some point, because I think that what I'm speaking to there is a different kind of mindset that we need to adopt um, that has been fair, very uh, foreign to America for the last 30 or so years. And so you know, within the last week now, the major mainstream news outlets have have published articles about how the intelligence community is looking into these things. Now, these are the same places that called Tom Cotton a conspiracy theorist and a racist at that point. If they had been as concerned about this as they pretend that they always were, they would have taken that theory more seriously. And there's a reason that they didn't take that theory seriously. And it's because if they did, then people would have attacked them the same way they attacked Tom Cotton. People online would have 
criticized the New York Times for promoting a conspiracy. And they would have said that it was a dangerous conspiracy that would that was going to lead to widespread racism. And that to them, to them, somehow those were the worst possible consequences of this situation. That is an unbelievably ignorant and dangerous mindset. Okay. If your first, if your first reaction to something with potentially world changing danger is, oh, well, we can't, we can't say it's the Chinese. That's very stupid. Okay. Like you wouldn't think if this situation happened to you or your family, if you were in um, severe danger, you would be trying to figure out where the danger was coming from and how to protect yourself rather than convincing yourself there is no danger because of what that might say about your personal biases or your level of uh, unwarranted paranoia or something, right? So the media completely missed that. And if they have to, if they have to reassess their position, if it becomes totally clear that the virus was started in a Wuhan lab, the chances of them apologizing to Tom Cotton are, are zero. They have also uh, destroyed the ability of the people on the left and in the theorist class of now taking Tom Cotton seriously. But the other day I was listening to um, the Bulwark podcast and that is by a guy named Charlie Sykes who was a longtime conservative radio host in Wisconsin, then, then a never Trumper and now is, you know, doing right of center media. But he had a guy named Tom Nichols on and Tom Nichols wrote a book about um, the loss of, of expertise in our society. And Tom Nichols is also an extremely vocal person on Twitter with an extremely anti-Trump bias. And that's fine. People can have whatever biases they like. But he said on the podcast that Tom Cotton had made the situation more dangerous by bringing up the information when he did because now he's made it impossible for people to believe him, even though he was right. Okay? That is the most convoluted bullshit I've ever heard in my life. The person who was giving you the first warnings, because you painted them as a conspiracy theorist and a fringe person, is now retroactively still wrong. Because he's a conspiracy theorist. If that makes sense to you, I have no idea how. It makes no sense to me. When I heard him say this on the podcast, I couldn't believe my ears. I mean, that thinking has no bearing whatsoever on reality. No one could guide their life by thinking that way. And yet he's here promoting himself not only as a member of the theorist class, right? But, but one who is so attached to the rightness of theory that he is impermeable to real world fact. All right. No matter what you think 
about the, the Wuhan lab theory, right? And whether or not it, it, it proves to be true. The idea that even though the intelligence community has signaled the possibility or likelihood of this being true, Tom Nichols gets to refute its truth by calling the man who was right about it a conspiracy theorist. That's fucking nuts. Okay. And so then the next step of that is the media that then says Trump surrounds himself with conspiracy theorists. Trump, once again, listening to conspiracy theorists. At what point does that become? We were listening to conspiracy theorists. We believe the conspiracy. Here's the conspiracy. Everything you don't like is racist. That is an actual conspiracy. And they were using that to refute what Tom Cotton was saying. That's utter insanity. Okay. Now, around the same time, Donald Trump announced that they were going to be limiting inbound flights from China and travel to China. Good, right? Almost everybody now agrees that an even more uh, restrictionist policy should have been implemented at that point, right? But, of course, when Trump announced this, everybody called it racist. So it can't be racist then and something we should have done earlier. It's only something we should have done earlier. Now, let's say Trump uh, and, and people, by the way, have have said, OK, well, yeah, I guess it wasn't racist, but him doing it like he's saying he did it now, but he didn't really do it because people have still been traveling back and forth. All right. Fair. That's true. Now, what prevented him from doing it earlier or doing it in a more restrictive way, right? Now, again, this is also potentially not true. I'm only proposing it as a theory to take away a level of unjustified certainty on the other side, okay? I am not saying that this is definitely what Trump did, and I am not implying his uh, competence or foresight by saying this. But if Trump is dealing in a media and public perception environment of even that restriction being called racist, what opportunity would he have had to eliminate um, travel from Iran, for instance, or from Italy? Those are both two coronavirus hotspots. The funniest thing is that the Chinese themselves limited flights from Wuhan to the rest of China, but did not limit the flights from Wuhan to the rest of the world. That in itself should show you that restrictionist travel policies in response to a pandemic are not only not racist and not in violation of any American principle in terms of immigration, but they're actually really fucking smart, okay? And China is an authoritarian country. They made the uh, assessment that they actually need to bar people's doors and not let them out of their houses to, spread, to uh, prevent the spread of coronavirus. The United States would never do that. So, the, so you know, this story progresses with these travel restrictions. And to justify calling these travel restrictions racist, Experts 
And again, this is these sorts of experts are what I call or what I'm now calling the theorists. Okay. And so I want, I want to present a picture of what I call the theorists so that I'm able to refer to this and everything it means in the future. And we have a term. Um, so you know what I'm saying by it, right? So when CNN wants to prove a, a point like this, you know, and by the way, they set these things up at, as news. And so when they're, you know, the, the proper way to discuss news is to say what happened and why get comment from the people doing the thing or, uh, and, you know, ask them what their intentions are. And then you can present a counterpoint. Okay. But when you write a headline like Florida beaches open and it presents, um, widespread danger to a still uncontained pandemic panic, right? Then they're telling you the conclusion that you're supposed to reach before you read the article. And then what they do is tell you why tell you what the bad person did, and then they will bring on an expert who will tell you that the bad person also did that thing, okay? They'll present what the bad person did, find an expert who is willing or who already agrees, I'm not implying any um, dishonesty by the expert, who agrees that what the bad man did is wrong, and so then you'll have an expert that refutes the, the, the person's action. And then you will get commentary from the opposite political side saying how irresponsible that action was. And now the right does this as well, um, in the opposite direction. Okay. This is a style of news. And when you read a style of news like this, your first response should be, these people are malicious liars. Okay. Because that is not how to present a news article. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. That's why I'm so grateful Anchor exists. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. They knock down all the barriers to entry. Let me explain. First off, it's free. I don't know how or why, but I'm happy about it. The platform's great. There are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. I can't even begin to describe how much easier it was to get my show on all the major platforms this time than it was a few years ago. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. That's right. You build your show, you make money. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place, and the company is committed to the success of its content creators. Go download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Okay, so sorry about springing that little commercial break on you. I don't want this to be too jolting. So now I'm, I'm ushering you back into the conversation. I should have no opinion on whether or not what they did in the Jacksonville beaches is right or prudent. Because I'm not there. I don't know the information that the public officials are making decisions on. And my pretense that my information given to me by the malicious liars is better than their information. And not only is my information better in its qualitative analysis, my moral point is also better. 
So not only do I have my justified uh, self-righteousness by which I can call you stupid and evil, I have experts behind me. And that's how we are presented information. And it's funny because we all know this inherently to be true, right? Like, have you ever gotten in an argument and been like, we better Google this, okay? And then you Google it and 10 of the answers say what your friend said. And then one of them says what you said. And you, and you send that article being like, dude, look, that's not a great way of arguing because you are, you are arguing from authority, which means I'm right because somebody else said it. And often that authority is really weak because these people in the media who are writing up these stories are by and large journalists. And unless they're writing for a medical journal or they are writing in their capacity as experts to describe a situation without giving their opinion, then that's awesome. And those are good authorities and you can refer to them. But if you have a uh, an opinion piece that just happens to be written by an expert, that only means that experts disagree about a given issue. And there are plenty of experts who disagree about COVID and the consequences, right? So you can say basically anything and find an expert out there who is uh, willing to back that up. Like there are people with doctor's degrees who will appear on the, the genuine fringe, the genuine conspiracy sites backing up their theories that COVID was released to distract the world as people went and saved the mole children who were kept in tunnels by the worldwide cabal of pedophiles. Okay. Now, the fact that you can get a doctor to agree with you or to say the same thing because of their supposed expert information, that is not enough to believe something as preposterous as that scenario. Okay. And listen, I don't need the heat from the conspiracy theorists. Like if you want to convince me of mole children, your bar is going to be extraordinarily high and you had better be a goddamn genius at proving your case. Okay. Because if something is extraordinarily unlikely, it's probably not true. And if it is true, you should be willing to accept it, but also require a really high standard before you change your mind on something like that. So then what we're left with when we're reading these articles is often a person who went to a nice college. Journalism is not the sort of field a whole lot of people from middle, lower middle class and lower class backgrounds go into because their upbringing generally guides them to the belief that that is a superfluous kind of pursuit, right? It's basically what uh, we could now call the non-essential worker class, which, by the way, I am one of. I am not saying that these people are living their lives badly or anything like that. I am simply saying that, like me, you should not trust them just because they have this or that picture on their Internet article or that they have uh, some expert who is happy to. Um, make the same point that they were already making. Okay. So, you know, I can have people on that I agree that uh, agree with me and I know they agree with me before we start and that'll make it sound like my point is even better. Now, the only way you should judge whether or not my point is good or my guest's point is good 
is whether or not I'm able to intelligently explain it with the necessary nuance and having at least contended with the objections. Okay. Otherwise, please don't believe anything I say. I'm going to try to tell you when it is my opinion speaking and, and why my opinion may or may not be justified. Okay. This is like, and, and again, you know, like I said in the intro episode, like I'm going to be unreasonable about certain things, you know, some, some things I have a, a very certain feeling about and I am communicating that on this I trust my instinct and that you don't have to, but if you take in the same information and consider the argument and you come to the same point as me, okay, maybe our instincts are justified, right? So amidst this argument, I, I see this one article and I send it to my friends and I was like, look, this is the perfect example of what the media is now doing, okay? So it was an article yesterday from Bloomberg um, and you can you can Google this for yourselves. It's called Hyped Malaria Pill Doesn't Help Clear Coronavirus in Study. Okay, and they're talking about hydroxychloroquine. Now, the people who have been touting hydroxychloroquine, including Donald Trump, have not claimed that hydroxychloroquine clears the virus. All right? They have not claimed it, that it's a cure. They have claimed that it is helping people alleviating their symptoms, which not only helps them get through the disease in less agony, but it also can help them save lives because the, the severity of the symptoms is one of the ways that this thing is becomes deadly. All right. So now let me listen. Let, let me read you um, this article. Maybe I'll read the whole thing. I'll try to be fast about it. Right. Hydroxychloroquine, the 65 year old malaria drug that President Donald Trump has praised, appeared appeared. Keyword not to help patients get rid of the pathogen in a small study. Great. None of us, anyone who has touted this drug in any way has ever claimed that the pathogen would be cleared by hydroxychloroquine. Okay, it is very, very, very important, important to understand that that is simply not the claim. And this article in its premise sentence says that the drug appeared not to help patients get rid of the pathogen. So they are writing this article with this very bold headline to tell you that it seems like the drug is not doing something that no one ever said it would do. Okay. That's a fucking crazy premise for an article. Now, they know people are going to click on it because there is an entire side that is emotionally invested in hydroxychloroquine not working so that they can win one over on Donald Trump. All right. They literally are depending on for their argument articles like this one and the possibility that people might continue to die in mass. Now, that is a terrible place to be arguing from, but they will never, ever see any backlash for what they're doing because their audience is already inclined to agree with them based on Donald Trump is stupid. Okay. And then to back it up, they based it on, well, Donald Trump owns a piece of the, the company responsible for hydroxychloroquine, which it turns out he owns potentially as little as a hundred dollars of a fund that has three percent, 3.3% of it, I think involved in the company that created hydroxychloroquine, which, by the way, is a generic medicine that they can no longer make massive sums of money on. Okay, that's another reason that they give 
um, why Trump was objectively wrong about hydroxychloroquine. And then here's another one. Trump's uh, suggestion that the drug might help is is dangerous because there are going to be shortages of it and uh, that people might use it who shouldn't. And there are potential side effects. OK, now. That's fucking crazy because a you need a prescription, which means a doctor needs to give it to you. So between you and your doctor, you have a discussion and the doctor gives you a responsible answer as to whether or not hydroxychloroquine might help you. OK, if people are taking uh, prescription medicines like off label without talking to a doctor, that's on them. If they drink fish tank cleaner, pretending that it's what Donald Trump said or being ignorant enough to think so, that is also on them. It's funny because the there are shortages of hydroxychloroquine stories have vanished in thin fucking air. OK, that was a big deal a week ago. Now, not a big deal, right? Okay, so back to the article. The pill didn't help patients clear the virus better than standard care and was much more likely to cause side effects, according to a study of 150 hospitalized patients by doctors at 16 centers in China. The research, which has not been peer-reviewed, was released Tuesday. So in this paragraph, and again, I'm not aiming at being a conspiracy theorist here, but we already know that China is where this virus came from, that they covered up its existence, that they influenced the WHO to help cover up its existence, and that they are now responsible for a worldwide pandemic. They are. We also know that they're underreporting their numbers by potentially multiples of, four, of 15 to 40 based on things like the number of uh, urns being sold in Wuhan. Now, that's not direct information. It's secondary information. And make of it what you will. Go research it till the depths. And if you think you are 100% convinced that, that that is not true, then by all means, think that I'm repeating a conspiracy. Okay? But an unpeer-reviewed article on a 65-year-old drug says that it doesn't clear the virus. Okay? That's where we are now, right? Uh, 150 patient article. Is that what I said? 150 patient study. The drug did help alleviate some clinical symptoms of COVID-19, however, and patients who took it showed a greater drop in C-reactive protein, a measure of inflammation. Now, right there, the article that says that the drug doesn't help says that the drug does help. Okay. The next paragraph. When testing new treatments, we are looking for signals that show that they might be effective before proceeding to larger studies, said Alan Chang, an infectious disease physician and professor of epidemiology at Melbourne's Monash University. This study doesn't show any signal, so it is probably unlikely that it will be of clinical benefit. That sentence itself is a little hard to um, parse because he could be talking, it will be unlikely uh, it will be unlikely that it will be of clinical benefit and he could be referring to the drug or to the study. It's not clear which it is. There were more side effects in the group of 75 people who took hydroxychloroquine, but they were mostly mild, the most common being diarrhea. The researchers led by uh, Wei Tang of uh, Ruijin Hospital. I'm not trying to mispronounce that and I'm not trying to. Um, do a voice impression uh, in Shanghai wrote that the medicine's anti-inflammatory effects probably helped alleviate patient symptoms. More studies of hydroxychloroquine are underway after the medicine made headlines in recent weeks and was endorsed by Trump. The results of these studies will be of interest, Chang said.
Okay, so we have an article again that hyped malaria pill doesn't help clear coronavirus in study, right? There is one paragraph at the beginning that says that and that it says and it says it wrong and misstates the claim of the other side in its premise. The second paragraph says that it didn't help clear the virus in the small study again, which no one claimed it did. The third paragraph, the fourth paragraph, the fifth paragraph, the sixth paragraph and the final quote all point to the exact opposite conclusion of what this headline pretends to tell you. That is mind blowing. Okay. And this is Bloomberg I'm talking about here. This is not something, this is not some crazed site like naturalfood.org. And by the way, I haven't said this and I haven't written it online yet, but we are being told that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work and is dangerous by people who take fucking homeopathic remedies and tell us how to remove toxins from our body by uh, fasts. That's not even a scientific thing, you fucking idiots. And like, why are we being forced to listen to these people and imagine that these people are fucking authorities on anything? You know, like some chick who fucking tells you that uh, homeopathics have like cured her fucking whatever. And these acai bowls that she takes pictures of on Instagram are making her the healthiest person on the planet. Like what kind of ignorance, idiocy and arrogance allows a person to say hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, even though they're not an epidemiologist, not a pharmacologist, not a doctor and haven't even read more than two articles. Like what in the world are people now thinking like this? You know, I'm not religious again. I'm an atheist, but this is what the definition of hubris is. This is what it looks like to be screaming and defying uh, God in the face of God. And now I don't believe in God again, and I'm not saying that my viewpoint is God or that this information is God. The, the idea of hubris is that you are taking a totally outsized view of yourself in, in the context of what you're talking about or believing. By the way, here was the, um, I just found the uh, Jacksonville uh, mayor's tweet yesterday. He said, local news has been objective in coverage of COVID-19 from beginning to where we are now. And they have been strong in the face of national and international news running sensational headlines with no understanding of our city. Thank you, local journalists. Long road ahead. Now, I don't know whether he's a Democrat or Republican, but I could guess he's Republican you know, because he's Jackson, because it's Jacksonville, and he's obviously doing something that's a little bit more on the libertarian end than the uh, authoritarian end. Okay, but the truth is, it doesn't matter. And I would guess that everyone reading that article assumed the Jacksonville mayor was in fact a Republican. So that indicates a bias on your part again. And if you hear the words that I just read. And you think that sounds like someone who is irresponsible and doesn't care about his community and is only doing this to suck up to Trump. I don't know where your uh, your moral compass is, and I don't know how you find yourself in judgment of people. Um, you're basically just declaring that anyone who doesn't agree with your mostly ignorant view is therefore an evil person who is just sucking up to the orange Russian puppet. 
Okay, and so I want to refer you to another article um, from yesterday. This is uh, from CNN.com, and it was updated today at 10.13 a.m. I have not uh, checked what the update is. But this, this article has four bylines, four different people contributed to it, okay? And it is titled, Behind on, text, on Testing, Texas Tries to Be the First to Reopen. So Behind on Testing is already telling you that the position you should hold on this article is Texas is unprepared, Okay. You don't know whether or not it is. And so it's left to be seen if the article is actually going to tell you whether or not Texas is unprepared. But then they say Texas tries to be the first to reopen. Now, they're not going to try. They're going to do it. And whether or not it is successful, they're not trying to do it. They are doing it. Okay. So right now we have very, very inaccurate language, and that inaccurate language is written intentionally to make you think a certain thing about what the article is going to say, because they know that most people will not read the article and that they will just go ahead and share it based on the headline. And that headline reinforces the agenda that they are pushing. And the agenda that they are pushing is that Trump is dangerous and stupid. Okay. The media believes that their biggest responsibility is not to tell us the truth and let us decide because we are the dumb, ignorant public. Their, their view is that they know that Trump is a, an existential threat to the nation and that, that whatever, whatever dishonesty or bias they are forced to practice in service of eliminating him is then morally worth it. That is terrible, terrible morality, and it speaks to a, a death of ethics in the journalistic community, okay? All right, so let's um, get to this article. I don't want to read the whole thing. I'm going to point out um, some of the things because I think this is the one I was uh, talking about before, okay? As Texas Governor Greg Abbott formulated a plan this week to reopen the world's 10th largest economy, he had to strike a delicate balance between two opposing forces, a push from the state's powerful business community eager to get back to work and health professionals and economists warning that a premature start could be deadly. Okay, so let's break that sentence down or break, break this uh, introduction down. Right. So the Texas Republican governor formulated a plan. Okay, that means that the Republican guy from Texas who we in the theorist class consider to be a bunch of dumbasses, even though that state is one of the like most well-governed places in the country, right? Certainly it's governed better than California is. And it has a much broader diversity of opinion than people give it credit for. Okay. Which is not to say that there's not fucking backs backwoods, ignorant, idiot Texans for fuck's sake. Okay. Um, but there are there are backwards, ignorant idiots in Hollywood and they get jobs as influencers and then tell you what to think about social issues. So consider that for a moment. OK, we are literally elevating the ignorant people on our side, the ones who care the least about whether or not the things they say are correct. All right. So let's go back to the article and then we'll get back to some of that later. So he had to strike a delicate balance between two opposing forces. One of those opposing forces is the powerful business community eager to get back to work. The other one is the professional, the health professionals and economists saying that the premature start could, could be deadly. The balance is not between powerful business forces that are ready to start work 
against the health professionals and the economists who would say this isn't going to work anyway, right? So they have set up two opposing sides and they are telling you which one is the right side, all right? The powerful business community, now that that uh, statement comes laden with the common thought that the business community is in constant battle with the citizenry and the people. Okay. Disregarding the fact that people work for these businesses. Okay. Disregarding the fact that many of the biggest corporations in the country were already deemed essential businesses and they have been open and making money. All right. However much it's reduced and their employees are still being paid. What's not open What's not open is, is people with their shops, um, people who, uh, have to work out of offices. You know, like there's a lot of stuff that's, that was deemed non-essential and the people who were, uh, deemed essential are still continuing to make money. And I'm happy that they are. I genuinely am. But the difference in what has been deemed essential and non-essential was not done so by a strict calculation of how to save the most possible lives, okay? And if it was, then the essential and non-essential would have been um, made different or their functionality would have been regulated in different ways, okay? The idea that a restaurant cooking your food and then handing it off to a delivery driver where it eventually gets to you introduces new people in the process between you and getting your food. Okay. So we should say like baseline, right? That the food that you might get packaged in a store is equally as safe as the food that comes into a restaurant. Now you could be one of those like organic people, right? And think that your like farm raised beef is better. But what I'm talking about is a uh, cleanliness in regards to the virus. Okay. So let's stay, let's make our baseline that the food in the grocery store before anyone touches it is the same as the food in the restaurant before uh, anyone touches it. Right. So if you are purely concerned about safety, your goal should be to eliminate the number of people between that grocery store shelf and your stomach. Okay. And what you've done by ordering from a restaurant. And by the way, I love restaurants. I have worked in restaurants and hospitality for, for 20 years. And uh, I believe that they are vital parts of the community. I do not want any of my bar and restaurant friends to fail at all, which is one of the reasons I have the viewpoint I have. But if we're talking about a strictly safest possible abundance of uh, caution scenario, you going to the grocery store with a mask on, you buying your groceries and you cooking them at home for yourself is the safest thing to do, okay? It's not forcing other people to go to work where they're around other people, which every kitchen is, and then having a member of the uh, worker class that you believe to be too dumb to participate in the discussion they have to risk themselves going to the restaurant to get food and to bring it to you because you have the money to pay them and because some woke people on the internet told you that supporting those businesses is essential right now. And they say that while posing the idea that the only people that want to open the economy are powerful business interests, okay? So they have, they have uh, set up and demeaned a class of workers 
based on the on the fact that it's unskilled labor, it doesn't require an education, it doesn't require a specialization, right? So this is a lower class of worker, uh, and I'm talking about the way the theorists see things, right? And people were actively encouraged to have these people go out and work so that they could get food and introduced another four or five or six people maybe to the process by which food enters your stomach. So if we are 100% concerned about the, the virus, we are acting in a way that shows that we are not 100% concerned about the virus. And so the solution here is to understand that you yourself have made a judgment that what you're doing is totally safe, which, by the way, I totally support you doing. Just please own it and stop saying that you are being 100% safe. Now, back to the article for a second, because I, I know this shit, like for me, this all intertwines and I feel like I'm making points that are a bit scattered. Uh, I hope that's not the case. Okay, but so back to the article. All right. In the end, Abbott took a measured approach. Instead of kicking off a full restart, the Texas governor announced that a group of medical and economic experts will guide him through a series of incremental steps aimed at slowing, at, at slowly reopening the state's economy. Now, that is, in process and ethic and letter, what Donald Trump's plan that he put out with Dr. Burks and Dr. Fauci was. But people think that Trump's plan is idiotic because Trump put it out. How can that be true? And how does CNN call it a measured approach in this instance? The group's aggressive name, the strike force to open Texas, belies Abbott's surprisingly cautious framework. Plans to restart business won't come until April 27th, and Abbott stressed that they will be determined by data and by doctors. Okay, the group's aggressive name belies its cautious framework. Now, did the headline make it sound like they were exercising a cautious framework when it said that they were behind on testing? It doesn't sound like that to me. Still, Abbott is ahead of the curve as one of the first big state governors to announce a firm timeline for his lifting his April 2nd stay at home order. Now, April 2nd was 17, 18, 19 days behind when uh, California closed. Okay, I think it was, I think it was the 14th or 15th. You can check my math. It's uh, irrelevant. But in that time, we had the theorist class and all its followers telling you that we should have a national lockdown and that the states that were remaining open or partially open were being irresponsible with people's lives. And the fact that they would do that would kill someone's grandmother. Okay, and so Texas has limited their entire closure to to uh, 25 days, whereas California's is already scheduled to be 60. All right. And now, again, the, the hotspots and the problems are in different places. I've stuck to that notion since the very fucking beginning. P places are different. OK, Abbott says uh, uh, opening Texas must must occur in stages. Obviously, not all businesses can open all at once on May 1st. A premature open. That was a quote. A premature opening of business of private businesses, he said, would further risk outbreaks and be more likely to set us back rather than to propel us forward. Okay. Everyone, everyone understands that. 
The people who are clamoring for instant reopening understand that. The people protesting in Michigan and wherever else understand that. And what do we do? We take pictures of their signs. We find the most extreme signs. And then we post them throughout social media and, and following what the regular media has told us about how stupid and ignorant and irresponsible these people are. And then on the flip side, when in 2017, we have the quote unquote women's march where their entire platform, much of it not even having to do with women, was introducing elements of uh, socialism, quasi-socialism. I am not judging it as socialism. It is literally socialism. And you can see it because those exact points are the basis for people's entire platforms like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or uh, uh, Rashida Tlaib, right? They have this thing. They wear pussy hats. They put up all sorts of awful preposterous signs and they go around chanting to national uh, aplomb. Everybody loves the Women's March. Now, the Women's March was scheduled long before uh, Donald Trump became president. There was always going to be a march in Washington that day because the expectation was that Hillary Clinton was going to win and that everyone would go down and show how powerful the cause was. Okay, but instead it was an anti-Trump march. And that's fine. People can march against Trump. I have no problem with that. But the fact that we're glorifying this thing, this uh, this women's march movement, largely founded on a total obliteration of economic facts and a desire to to hate Trump and a desire to install socialism in the United States. And by the way, I know what that sounds like to your ears. Okay, you do not have to believe me if you don't believe me, though. Rather than turning this off, press pause and go look at the 2017 Women's March platform, all right? And then compare that to, for instance, the Green New Deal or to Bernie Sanders' policy positions on his website. That's all I ask, okay? If you think that I am being totally out of bounds, once again, stop the podcast, unfollow me, uh, never listen to me again, write a story about how I'm a conspiracy theorist, you're welcome to do all of that, Okay? Um, because I'm, a, I'm 100% confident that I have done research adequate to have that be my opinion. And I am more than happy to back it up in any venue. Friday's plan was a significant step back from what some had anticipated would be a much more aggressive push from Abbott to reopen the famously pro-business Texas. The Lone Star State and its $1. trillion economy, second only to California in size, has been hit particularly hard by a one-two punch of tumbling oil prices and a global pandemic. Okay, Texas is awash in unemployment claims that have topped one million in the past four weeks, representing about 7.2 percent of the uh, state's total labor force. At the same time, it's only been two weeks since Abbott issued his stay at home order. Texas remains woefully behind many of the nation's other largest states in the number of coronavirus tests conducted, which made some of Abbott's early optimism about reopening all the more striking. In a state of 29 million people, only 169,536 coronavirus tests have been conducted as of Friday, according to the Texas Department of State Health Services, with a total of 17,371 cases reported and 428 coronavirus-related fatalities. Okay? Now... The framing of that is that there are so many people in this state and we have tested so few. So the potential that so many other people have this and it might spread among them and we just don't know it yet. 
That is what this, this, uh, this paragraph is trying to tell you. Now that is totally possible. Okay. It's also totally possible that there is a extremely limited number of cases in that state because a hotspot didn't arrive. But here's what I've been thinking a lot about. And again, this is one of those things that I know not everybody's going to be on board with right away. And I'm fine with that. I'm going to try to explain it as best I can. But I look at this situation, right? And we have this governor who is going to implement the reopen of the Texas economy quicker than most people in the media and theorist class think is responsible, right? There is absolutely no downside for CNN to report the article this way, but they have no downside in saying that, okay? If they are proven wrong, if the Texas economy reopens, it goes smoothly and successfully, new coronavirus cases do not pop up, CNN doesn't have to retract the article, they don't have to retract the opinion, but if Abbott is wrong, then the possibility for mass death and destruction across Texas is everything these people fear it is, right? Abbott does not, in that circumstance, get reelected because the, the, the deaths will literally be at his feet, which means that this is one of the most difficult choices a governor could make. Okay, and it is not enough for um, for choices that are going to be made at this level that have direct impact on people's lives. It is not enough to assume that the R next to his name makes his decision uh, an easy one, uh, one that he for sure was going to do this one that is motivated by his uh, his love of big business. You have to attribute a an entire lack of moral soul to this person to think that he is just going to willy nilly do this thing that might cost the citizens he is tasked to protect thousands and thousands of lives and the entire future of their economy for a generation. Okay. So he has something great to lose on his side. He also has better access to information than CNN does, undoubtedly. I don't think I'm out on a limb thinking that, which is why we have an article that states one thing and then does not support that thing in any conclusive way, except by tying the decision to big business, laziness, stupidity, and Donald Trump. Okay? None of those are compelling fact-based responses to what the governor is doing. Okay, and I think that this might be um, uh, a time to um, discuss the interplay of the economy and the health concerns, okay? Because we are pretending that we are in a situation we are not in. We are pretending that the only, um, the only interest uh, in the situation is uh, one of saving lives in the uh, short term and medium term, okay? Now, that goal is... Um, morally justified uh it is uh timely in its response it is caring to the people who are directly affected by this illness and the loved ones around them and it is caring to the people who are 
um, for whatever demographic reason, especially vulnerable, whether it's because they're old, whether it's because they're obese, those are both, uh, or whether because they're immunocompromised or have other um, comorbidities, right? Now, I understand that completely. Anyone with a heart and family and loved ones understands that argument. Now, that said, that is a... um, that is an extreme view to one end, right? If two things are in conflict, then those two things are the extremes. And the solution is either one of those extremes or it lies somewhere in the middle. Often it lies somewhere in the middle. Okay. But this is presented as on one side, all of those deaths. And then on the other side, the economy, which means you know, in internet parlance and in media parlance in, in the parlance of people who want to make this a morally untenable position, they reduce it to dollars. They reduce it to the stock market. They reduce it to um, the overall economy in the context of how much it helps or hurts Trump in the coming election. Now, be clear, what happens in the coronavirus, the results that we see over the next few months will entirely dictate the outcome of the election. Okay. If, if the country reopens on some level and we are confronted with, with mass death and multiple outbreaks of the kind that we experienced in March, then Trump will not be elected. There's nothing he's going to be able to do. There's no foreign interference. There's nothing that will save him in that scenario. Okay. Likewise, if he opens quickly, the the economy rebounds and the deaths don't pop up, Trump will surely be elected again, which means that everyone who hates Trump is incentivized in this story to present Trump in the worst possible way, whereas everyone who is supporting Trump is also um, incentivized to support to uh, talk about everything Trump is doing in a very positive way so that they can help with his reelection. Right. And the depths of depravity to which those people will sink to defend Trump. If the bad scenario happens, if he reopens and people do die and mass, those people will absolutely they, they will be moral monsters. They will be unable to uh, be defended by logic or reason, but just the same. There is a, a midpoint between these two places. Well, first of all, let's, let's clarify what the economy is, okay? The economy is what everyone is able to create and how much they are able to make the fruits of their labor pay off for housing, food, survival, and then the things that make them happy, whether they're vacations or objects or these people get rich and they buy ostentatious things. Like Those are all parts of the economy as well. But here are other parts of the economy, the ability to pay for health care. Now, it doesn't matter if you are for a single payer plan or if you want, uh, are happy with the status quo or if you want even less government and insurance company and regulation inside the healthcare business, which is where I am. Regardless of any of those things, it has to be paid for. It doesn't matter who's paying for it, whether it's the people paying for it or whether it's the government paying for it. There is not an unlimited supply of money to the government because now after the stimulus thing, our national debt has to be in the neighborhood of $26 trillion and growing. There is not a way to just give everybody everything forever, especially not when um, we are paying them right now essentially to stay home. 
Okay. And now again, I'm not saying people want this money and that they would prefer to be staying home rather than working. I am not saying that what they're doing is unjustified. I am simply saying that right now money is being given to Americans and being given to businesses in hopes that those Americans will be able to survive and continue to spend money to help the economy and that those businesses will survive and be able to employ people after this is all over. Similarly, college education, regardless of how you think it should be paid for, whether or not you think the government should make it free, whether you think people's loans should be uh, forgiven forever, blah, 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 right? It doesn't matter. It is a parallel scenario. There isn't money there either way now, okay? Depending on how long the economy struggles for, the amount of money available to solve problems like that decreases. In the coming months, you are going to see businesses close up around you. You are going to see people who were fired or laid off in various states of uh, depression. They'll be less healthy because they're not seeking medical attention right now. Stores will be boarded up like places that you used to love to go are not there anymore. These are elements of the economy that directly relate to your ability to survive and to be happy. And it directly relates to other people's ability to survive and be happy. Now, I am totally compelled by this scenario as presented to us where we are, you know, me at my age, I am not greatly threatened by getting coronavirus, but I do understand my community responsibility to not carry it around and spread it to other people. I have been cooking now at my house for the last six weeks, which is a bit of a foreign experience to me, but a good one. I mean, I'm totally happy to be doing it, but besides that, I don't leave my house. I don't go out for anything other than groceries and supplies. There are people that are, by the way, hanging out with their friends. They're like, oh, it's okay. It's just a small unit of us, right? Or they're dating, which by the way, Dr. Fauci literally said in an interview in the New York Post that is available to all of you that it is okay for people to hook up with their Tinder dates, okay? Right now. So if it is okay for you to go make out with a stranger, are we supposed to simultaneously be concerned that everywhere we walk and breathe, we are about to kill someone's grandmother? Give me a fucking break. You know, that is a complete breakdown in, um, in the narrative. And if it, if, if that fact doesn't stun and shock you about what your perceptions of this disease were prior, I don't know what to tell you. Okay. Please look it up. Just Google New York Post, New York Post, Dr. Fauci, Tinder. All right. And you can see it. It's in the New York Post. If that's fake news, if they're reporting a fake interview with Dr. Fauci, I would think that that would be national news. I mean, if they report that and Fauci doesn't agree with how that is portrayed, then that news article is extraordinarily dangerous, right? But there's been no alarm. Okay. So why is that? And so now the reason I bring this up is because as a person who is relatively unthreatened by coronavirus, what I'm being asked to do and what you're being asked to do is to change our lifestyle completely, stay indoors at homes. Luckily, mine is totally comfortable and I'm happy um, and I'm unthreatened here. But there are families that are dysfunctional. There are families that are violent. There are couples that are violent. There are children who will be abused, who will go on to create violence in the world in the future. There is 
a danger to what we are doing now. And again, I am happy to lock down and to take the precautionary measures necessary to ensure my health and the health of others. Okay. That has its limits. All right. And it has its limits for everyone. And the idea here is, and this is what I think gets to the real heart of what is upsetting people about this situation and the way that they are being talked to and treated. If there was one thing I can imagine being the primary motivation for these people, for these people protesting, it is the fact that they are saying to themselves, to their families, my life is falling apart. And not only is it falling apart, it is being systematically dismantled by an outside force. Okay. It is one thing if your life is torn apart due to your own bad behavior and bad decisions. It's another thing when your life is torn apart by an accident. If someone crashes their car into you, your life has been unjustly broken, right? If similarly, if you crash your car into someone else, they, theirs is, but if you crash your car on your own and injure yourself, that's on nobody. That's a risk of life. And it's a risk of life that we repeatedly decide to take. And often we don't even take that risk all that seriously. We'll put our makeup on in our car. We'll eat in our car. We will sing and dance in our car. We have a class of young people who cannot stop filming themselves being cute and silly while driving. Okay. And I have to listen to the moralizing of people who do that. Like, where is your moral compass located, if not there? Okay. And again, it is okay to be hypocrites at points in our lives. But the realization should be that while you're doing that, you are making a judgment that your health and the health of someone else is less important than the activity that you're doing. And that can make sense if the activity you're doing is important or if you have judged the risk to be so negligible that you are not presenting one. Okay. And so there is, there is no escape from the, from the moral trade-off scenario. All right. Not in anything you do. And that's why it's important to think about your actions and especially how you view those actions in the context of someone else's actions that you are prepared to call them evil for. Okay. And so we have a nation that, by the way, should have been asked, not commanded. We should have been asked, Hey, are you fundamentally okay with making this sacrifice in order for us to attempt to save the lives of people that you may care about or from the goodness of your heart, have the sympathy and empathy to care about someone else that you don't know going through that situation. All right. But it's not even that simple because that request was made to us not to save the maximum possible lives and not to eliminate coronavirus from our society as quickly as possible. That request was made to quote unquote flatten the curve. And what flattening the curve is, is extending the spread out for a longer time so that the spread does not overwhelm our healthcare system. 
thereby making it more likely that the people who do get it get it all at one time and then die due to lack of health care or die due to the lack of uh, of successful treatments. OK, so that's the trade off. Right. That is a totally fair request. I can also accept the argument that it's a totally fair commandment with restrictions. OK, there is a point at which that commandment no longer makes sense morally because of the damage that we're doing to the economy, which reflects in real people's lives. OK, and this is one of the parts I get the most heated about because I, I saw some stats the other day. There was a survey done by Politico where um, they asked people their opinions on uh, whether or not we should remain in lockdown. Right. And high numbers of people responded that they should remain in lockdown, that we should all remain in lockdown. And the articles written about this presented the information in such a way that the desire to remain home was the takeaway. My takeaway was something else, because if you look through the survey, you can find some some statistics that are very telling. It turns out that of the people surveyed, 77 percent had not been laid off and not known someone who has been. And 59 percent had not even lost any income. And so if you take those two things into account, then you have now surveyed a group of people largely composed of people who are not being hurt by this scenario. And the fact that those people get to be surveyed and that their morality is the one that is pushed forth in the broader public conversation is disgusting. And it's especially disgusting to hear that that point of view being pushed forth by the very people who spend their entire existence trying to push the the righteousness, the rightness and the moral justification for the quote unquote woke point of view, the social justice point of view, the idea that these people care about the quote unquote vulnerable as if the vulnerable weren't always going to take the brunt of it. That's what vulnerable means. Okay. These people support, pretend to support the vulnerable people all the time, especially when they are of a uh, racial, ethnic, religious minority class, right? That caring ends immediately when they are not the ones that are being harmed at the same time that they have been told a story that horrifies them in such a way that they can't even understand why someone else wouldn't be scared. All right. And these people are dominating the public conversation. They dominate the theorist class in the media, the entertainment culture, the political culture. OK. And and our decisions are eventually being made by people who are absolutely bent by the will of social media. And if you don't believe me, just go look at the candidacies of people like Kamala Harris and Elizabeth Warren. Now, both of those women were touted as the um, the new leaders of the Democratic Party, the new saviors of the Democratic Party. And what they did and the reason why they lost was because they doubled and tripled and quadrupled down on the wokest possible narratives as if the country was made up of people on Twitter who thought like them. The, the, the country is made up of people who are as scared of being called called racist for thinking that closing the doors to China early on was a good idea. If people are still 
amending their thought and their speech over complaints as as thin and superficial as those ones, we are being put in a position of grave, grave danger. Okay, and it's a it's being abetted by the media. And again, I know this sounds like one of those conspiracy things. I'm only asking for your patience and consideration. Okay, because when you see politicians constantly on Twitter and they are continually reposting certain points of view held by certain writers and they are uh, making these points of view parts of their national agenda, as Elizabeth Warren did many times. Elizabeth Warren actually said that she would consult a uh, a trans teenager in her choosing of the secretary of education. Now, why would she do that? Is Elizabeth Warren dumb? We know she's not right. So she couldn't have been convinced that that's a good idea. Right. Is she gullible enough to believe the people on Twitter and to misinterpret that crowd on Twitter as being representative of a real belief throughout the country? Did she explore the belief to its depths and determine whether or not it was legitimate? Okay. She said it. There is no going back from a statement like that because you have now exposed yourself as someone who is so dumb that they believe that so ignorant that they haven't explored the belief or so weak willed that they bend to an image that is unrepresentative of the actual society that they are intending to represent. If that sounds to you like a person who is prepared to lead, I don't know what is wrong with you. By the way, for the sake of clarity, I do want to mention that the Fauci article, he said that if you are prepared to uh, handle the risk, you know, in in relation to the the Tinder hookups, but the way he said it implies personal risk, right? The risk of you getting it from someone else, right? Because if his opinion was that no one should hook up with a stranger right now, he could have said it. And it would have been a very powerful thing for him to say. He would have said very clearly, no, it is not advisable whatsoever for you to go out and exchange bodily fluids with a stranger. Okay. Very fucking simple thing to say. All he has to do is say it. He didn't. He didn't. And everybody, I think at this point views Fauci, unless you're like a right wing, like, uh, like an actual fringe person who is on the fire Fauci train. Like that seems completely excessive, right? But unless you are one of those people, then you've probably spent the last eight weeks touting Anthony Fauci's, um, his brilliance, his unwaveringness, his total disregard for whether or not he has to comply with Trump's point of view, which he quite clearly has not. Every, every major media source has published stories about how Anthony Fauci clearly disagrees with Donald Trump and how they are at odds. And they do this even after Fauci goes on television and explains how he isn't at odds with the president. And again, a tangent, but there was an example this past week where uh, they created a drama about how Fauci said that if we had taken steps earlier, it's possible that lives would have been saved or even likely because That is just based on the most obvious fact in the world that if things had been done earlier, 
it may have helped prevent the bad thing from happening. That is literally true in every bad scenario that you could ever even dream up. You would have never had that awful breakup if you had had the foresight to realize you started dating a cheater, right? There you go. We can play that game for fucking ever. But they made a huge big deal about it. The media redirected the story as proof that Donald Trump was directly responsible for people's deaths and had blood on his hands. And then Fauci came and clarified what he was obviously saying and was like, no, you gave me a hypothetical. I told you the truth of the hypothetical. He's like, that doesn't mean that we could have been expected to do X, Y, Z, and that it's somebody's direct responsibility. Okay. And I'm going to get to that stuff too. Fuck. I know this is going to go so long and I'm so sorry. I hope you guys are listening to this in installments. I just, if you trust me at all, I genuinely think this conversation is very important. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut this here and make this part one and then make the rest of the conversation uh, part two. I'll release them together. I just don't want to like overload anyone's brain. And this is an acceptable stopping point. What you'll get at the beginning of part two is me going back into discussing how social media influences politicians directly and then returning to the central narrative and discussing uh, what I call the theorists uh, in greater depth. So I hope you're good so far and I hope that you are interested in hearing part two. And so now I will say goodbye for part one. If you like the show, please share it with your friends and give it a five-star rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts so new listeners can take your word for it. You can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at I'm Your Moderator. If you have feedback, you can email heymoderator at imyourmoderator.com or use the hashtag heymoderator on Twitter. If you'd like to support the show, search Be Reasonable on Patreon, where I'll have additional daily ish segments in a special podcast feed of the show, as well as my writing and audio readings of those articles. You can also go to anchor.fm slash be reasonable and become a supporter there. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Be reasonable. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast.